good evening. I'm excited to start this sermon series on Galatians. I was talking with Elder Bill before about the impact it's had on his own life and just reflecting on really how important this epistle has been in the life of the church, particularly in the time of the Reformation. Perhaps no epistle besides maybe Romans were so important in bringing the gospel clearly to light in the 16th century. Um, So as we come to study or to be studied by this book, we come expectantly that God will use it to change us, to transform lives, and to show us the free gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we begin today by looking at Galatians 1. Would you please stand out of reverence for the word of God? Galatians 1, and we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. Please pay careful attention to this. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you, a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now trying, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the living and active word of God. Please receive it as such. You may be seated. Do you want the good news, or do you want the bad news? This is a statement that slipped into our popular colloquial language. Um, For instance, I might take my car to the mechanic and come home, and my wife asks me, how did it go? I'll say, do you want the good news, or do you want the bad news? The good news being our car is fixed. The bad news being the prices were ridiculous, and it costs an arm and a leg. If you've partaken in our membership interviews, which we're having a lot, as Pastor Joel noted, whether recently or in the past, you might recall that Pastor Joel structures these interviews around questions of what is the bad news about our sin and what it deserves, and what is the good news about Jesus Christ and what he does to deliver us from that. Spoiler alert for those of you who are about to take that. Hopefully that helps you. I appreciate these questions, though, that Pastor Joel does, because they get to the heart of our situation in a world of sin and misery, and the solution which is found in Christ. It's appropriate to talk about these two aspects of bad news and good news. And in categorizing it this way, it reminds us about what that word gospel actually means at its root. The word evangelion, we translate as gospel, literally means good news. Because we're so used to it, though, it's just kind of a word we throw out there, gospel, gospel, and don't actually think about this basic meaning. But at its base, the gospel means good news. 
And of course, that presupposes the fact that there is bad news, which we experience. This basic meaning of good news would not have been lost on Paul's original audience, the Gentile Galatians. The language of evangelion, gospel or good news, it was used in the political propaganda of Rome quite frequently. The claim of gospel or good news was used and associated with the Roman emperors like Augustus and Vespasian. When they rose to power, they proclaimed the good news that their reign is brought in the the peace, prosperity, and protection which their reign brought. To the Jews, this language of gospel or good news would have been familiar as well, especially if you think about those later chapters of Isaiah, like Isaiah 40 and 61. Those passages talk about good news coming and being proclaimed to the nations. So to Paul's original audience, both Gentiles and Jews, this language of gospel, it communicated the reality of good news. But Paul is going to explain exactly what that means in relation to the person and work of Christ. This lexical and contextual observation, it perhaps helps us, though, to understand these opening verses of Galatians. In these first 10 verses, Paul discusses the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news regarding Jesus who gave himself for our sins and was raised again by the Father as our Lord and Savior. Yet he's going to contrast this true gospel or good news with another gospel which the Galatians are turning to, which is actually no gospel at all, as he'll explain. In this way, we see that for Paul... The question which he has for the Galatians and which he has for us this evening is the one with which we started. Do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? For Paul, the true gospel and good news is always and only the message of free grace and salvation based on the person and work of Christ alone, which is contrasted with any other supposed gospel which relies on human efforts and works and rituals. What we'll see today is that the only good news, the only gospel message communicated to humanity, it comes in the message of free and total salvation, which relies on the person and work of Christ, receiving him by faith. That is the only good news which comes to fallen humanity. To come to this conclusion, we're going to consider this text in two parts. First, we're going to look at the deliverance of the gospel, verses 1 through 5. Second, we'll look at the desertion of the gospel, verses 6 through 10. So deliverance and desertion. Let's look at that first point, the deliverance of the gospel. In the Greco-Roman world, there was a standard formula for letter writing. You would open by identifying yourself as the sender of the letter, then identify who the intended recipients of the letter was, and then you would give a section of um, thanksgiving and greetings, mostly greetings. We still have somewhat of this in an email format, or maybe text message for the younger people who don't know what that is. And some people even are ancient enough to still send letters. And you would typically say, dear this person. And you would say, I'm writing to you for this. And So we kind of have a standard formula, but it was followed pretty rigidly in the Greco-Roman world. Thus, Paul begins his letter. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. 
While this is a typical opening element of a letter that he identifies himself, that does not mean that we should pass over this lightly. Paul is actually very intentional in his opening here with every word having significance for the rest of the epistle. First, he identifies himself as Paul, an apostle. Like with the word gospel, we're kind of so used to that word apostle as just being like a title that we don't always think accurately about what it means. Uh, We often just think of it as a title and move on. The word at its base means someone who has been sent. More specifically, it refers to somebody who has been commissioned as a delegate to speak on behalf of someone else. In the New Testament, we have what can be called uppercase A apostles, referring to those who were directly commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be representatives of him to the nations. These are the twelve and Matthias who replaced Judas, and then later Jesus would call the Apostle Paul as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Yet there's also what we might call lowercase a apostles, such as Barnabas and James, the brother of Jesus. You'll see this title applied to them, but it's not to put them on the same status as like Paul and Peter. These were those who were recognized leaders in the church. An uppercase A apostle was those who were directly commissioned by Christ, but the lowercase ones were those who were recognized by the church and were sent through the ministration of the church. So there's a difference between having a direct commission from Christ for a very specific task to speak to the nations and those who are being sent through the agency of the church. The reason why this is important is because Paul is not claiming to be a lowercase apostle, but an uppercase one. In other words, he's not sent by men, but is officially commissioned by Christ as an apostle. And this is going to be really important in his argument in chapter 2. Thus he can state, though, that he's an apostle not from men, nor through man. Here he's denying that his apostleship has its source in anything human, or human agency, rather, too. Because he'll say that it's not from men, in the plural, and he'll say, nor through any man, Singular. Paul is strenuously saying, I do not have my apostleship from man as its source, nor through the agency or the instrumentality of man. My apostleship comes from the risen Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Here Paul seems to be alluding to his encounter on the Damascus Road where he saw the Lord Jesus Christ and he fell to the ground and he was converted and commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It seems to be echoed in his language here. As we will come to see more clearly as we work through the book of Galatians, Paul's status as an apostle, and the reason why he emphasizes it here, is being challenged by false teachers who are among the churches of Galatia. They likely thought of Paul as having a a lower class apostleship, certainly not on the level of a Peter or a John, and they were slandering him. So from the very start, Paul firmly states his official status as an ambassador directly commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. Notice too in verse 2 that he adds, And all the brothers who are with me. Typically Paul will include in his co-sending thing someone like Suthonius or Timothy as sending greetings as well, that they're sending the letter as well. Here, this letter uniquely emphasizes all the brothers or all the brothers and sisters who are with me to the churches 
of Galatia. As we'll talk about more in later weeks, Paul is most likely sending this letter from Antioch in Syria. This is the place which quickly became the hub of Christianity in the early life of the church. It's here where believers were first called Christians, as Acts 11 tells us. And it's here where Paul was sent out for all three of his missionary journeys. And most importantly, it is from here that Paul was sent out to plant the churches in Galatia. At this time, it's important to note that there were two different places and peoples which could be referred to as Galatia and Galatians. There was a North Galatia, which was higher up in Asia Minor and was closer to the Black Sea. And there was a South Galatia, which was down lower to the Mediterranean Sea in Asia Minor. The one was planted by the the Celts, the Celtics, and they were ethnic Galatia. That's the northern one. And the other one is a Roman province. There were so many ethnic Galatians who lived in southern Galatia that they actually called it and named it an official Roman province. And that's the place that has Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, as we read about in the book of Acts when Paul plants the churches there. Okay, why is that important? Well, in this letter, Paul is dealing with a very specific situation and problem which is taking place in Galatia. Uh, By knowing which Galatia he's writing to, we can better understand his argument. For reasons which we'll discuss, especially when looking at chapter 2, I believe it's most likely that Paul is writing to South Galatia, the Roman province where he planted churches on his first missionary journey. I also believe, for reasons we'll talk about, that he is writing this right after his first missionary journey. And he had planted those churches, which is recorded for us in Acts 13 and 14, if you want to read that. And it's right before the Jerusalem Council, which will be a very important point as well as we go on. So this means Galatians was written in AD 48 or 49, right before the Jerusalem Council. But what's important for us to take from this right now, and we'll work through all that other stuff later, it's important for us to take from this discussion that Paul is writing to the province of South Galatia, writing to not one but a number of churches which he has recently planted, and he's backing up his letter with the authority of all the congregation at Antioch, the church that sent him out to plant their church in the first place. So he's not writing with his own opinion and authority. He's writing on the opinion and authority of Christ, and he's backed by all the brothers and sisters who are in Antioch with them. In other words... These Galatians should really, really pay heed to what Paul has to say to them. Now, having identified himself and the brothers and sisters who are with him as the senders of the letter, and the Galatians as the recipients, Paul goes on to that third element of ancient letter writing, saying in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul adds a Christological modification to the the typical Greco-Roman style. Whereas the Greco-Romans would have said, greetings, karin. Paul says, grace, haris. Ultimately, as an apostle, he's not sending a greeting from himself, but he's extending to them the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Note also that he adds a Jewish twist to it. He says, grace to you and peace. The Greek word for peace here, erinain, is the same as the, it would have been the translation of the Hebrew, shalom, 
which in the Old Testament was the promise of God's blessing and the hope of a future in which God's righteous reign prevails over all the earth. So he's saying through Christ and by his instrumentality of his minister, God is extending to the Galatians the promise of shalom through the grace which is in Christ Jesus. In verse 4, he expands on the, the content of the peace and the grace which is coming by saying, who, referring to Jesus, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father. This is one of the clearest and most beautiful expressions in the New Testament of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In these few words, Paul explains all that the gospel has for us. He says, he uses the word, the Greek word, huper. This word's a beautiful word. It has a, a sense of substitution. It's just translated as for in our ESV, but it could be translated perhaps better as on behalf of, in your place. The picture that Paul is saying that he gave himself to die in the place of our sins on our behalf, standing in our place. And notice that it's both true that Jesus gave himself willingly, but also that it was in accordance, according to the will of God our Father. Both these truths go together. Through his self-gift, Jesus delivers us from what Paul calls the present evil age. I like that that's a, a jab at the idea of the Greco-Roman culture that Augustus and them have brought this beautiful prosperity and peace. Well, all of that beautiful Greco-Roman empire, Paul says, is a present evil age. This phrase points to Paul's, though, two-age theology, wherein he delineates two separate ages. The present age, which is evil, as is characterized by sin, death, and misery, and the age which is to come, characterized by righteousness and life. Yet what he's saying to us is this marvelous truth that this future age has actually come proleptically into the present by faith. Through faith in Christ, we actually partake of the peace and the grace of that coming age that God will bring about. It's in reverie that Paul concludes this prescript in doxology, saying of the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We began today by talking about the, world, the word gospel and the claims of good news which even the Roman Empire had. Well, the Romans actually had a concept of peace. Actually, everywhere, the Roman emperors lauded this idea of the peace which they brought. Perhaps you've heard of the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They would talk about this everywhere. As, as one commentator notes, the so-called divine Augustus, he proclaimed himself to be divine, he had his gifts of peace immortalized with, erecting, with the erection of the altar of the Augustus peace on Mars Hill at which sacrifices were made annually to celebrate the peace which he brought. And you know, there was actually some truth to this claim that the Greco-Roman emperors made. They made beautiful roads, roads which Paul actually uses. They made traveling safer by guarding against pirates. They put down riots. But how did this peace come about? It came through the brutalizing military force of Rome. It was an enforced peace which held its subjects under its iron feet. 
But you know what else? Those iron feet also had a clay element. The Pax Romana lasted only 200 years, and the empire itself would fall not long after that. But what about the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ? What brought about this peace? Unlike the Roman Empire, which brought peace through military brutality, the Lord Jesus Christ brought peace by being brutalized at the hands of the Romans. According to the will of our kind Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ has brought to us an everlasting peace through the gift of himself on the cross. This is why nearly 2,000 years later, Christ's ministers are able to stand and proclaim grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike the glory of the divine Augustus, the true glory belongs to God our Father forever and ever Amen, Paul says. This is the good news. This is the only good news. Deliverance from this present evil age is the glory of this gospel deliverance, which makes it its desertion such a serious thing. Which brings us to our second and last point. We've just considered the deliverance of the gospel. Now let us consider that element, the desertion of the gospel. We have talked about Paul's letter-writing formula as following the Greco-Roman pattern of identifying the sender, the recipients, and giving a greetings. Yet there's another common element which Paul adds to his letters. He usually incorporates a prayer of thanksgiving and asks for petitions on his own behalf. He gives thanks for the saints and asks for petitions. Yet here you'll notice Paul omits, omits this and gets right into the meat of the letter, highlighting the seriousness and the urgency of the situation at Galatia. Instead of a section of thanksgiving, Paul immediately enters into admonition, saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Paul has just described the glorious deliverance which they have experienced in Christ. Yet here he quickly transitions into marveling over how quickly they have turned from this. He says that he is astonished at how quickly they are deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In reading this, remember what we just talked about. That Paul has literally just planted these churches and established them in Galatia in the very recent past. In the timeline of Paul's ministry, he has just finished that first missionary journey And it's been a very short time since these churches have been planted, and they are now turning to a different gospel. No wonder he's so shocked. No wonder he's astonished. It is a short time that they are turning from the God who called them in Christ. So, here now, instead of offering thanksgiving for these saints, he announces his bewilderment at how soon they have turned from the true gospel to another one. Yet note also that Paul quickly amends his statement and clarifies his point. It's not as if there is another gospel. He states in verse 7, Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Without explicitly using the term gospel, Paul, in these first five verses, has delineated the content of the gospel, describing the deliverance of the gospel and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is total and free. 
This brings us to the heart of the problem at Galatia. Paul says that there is not another gospel message, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort or pervert the gospel of Christ. This is in reference to the false teachers who have crept in, which which we've talked about. It's these who argue that above and beyond the gospel of deliverance through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that more is necessary. You guys are doing all right, but as we're going to come to see you, they're going to say, you need to have circumcision. You need to put yourself under the law. In other words, on top of Christ, they're arguing that something else is necessary. You need to supplement the work of Christ, as it were. That is why Paul is so vehement and so strong in this opening of the letter. It's for this reason that he strenuously denies that there is another gospel. To him, there is no good news apart from the gospel of deliverance through the free grace found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything else is a deviation from and distortion of the gospel of free grace. Thus, he corrects that statement saying that there is no different gospel. What they are turning to is not good news. They are turning again to the bad news of sin and misery. Paul doubles down on his conviction that the only true gospel message is found in Christ alone by saying in verse 8 that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Anathema esto, let him be accursed. Perhaps you recognize that word anathema. It's still used in the Roman Catholic Church. And we even use it in the broader culture. We'll say that uh, that's anathema, talking about things which are taboo or not kosher. The Greek term refers to something that has been devoted towards someone or something, or something that is set apart for destruction. Anathema was the word used in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew word harem. You remember when the Israelites were going to conquer the land of Canaan? And God told them that they were not to take any of the devoted things. Those were anathema. These were to be destroyed and burnt. Do you recall also what happened when someone named Achan tried to take some of these devoted things? And he hid them in his tent. And the Lord had him put to death. He became anathema. He became harem because he had disobeyed the Lord and he had sought to plunder and gain from this. That's what the word means. This is, in effect, what Paul is calling upon to happen to anyone who would preach a false gospel. That they would be devoted to destruction, to be accursed. And note that Paul doesn't exempt himself from this. He says, if we, or he goes even further, if an angel came from heaven and preached this to you. He's using this hyperbolic situation to highlight his point that no matter who it is who would contradict the true gospel, they are to be accursed for this. You see, God is no respecter of persons and neither is his gospel subject to the will and wishes of man. Neither the apostle Paul nor an angel from heaven is able to change, alternate, add to, or subtract from it. The gospel of God's free grace and deliverance through the person and work of Christ is God's gospel. It's his truth, and it's not subject to the dictates, the wills, and the wishes of man. To underline this point, Paul states again in verse 9, 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This indicates that while Paul was with the Galatians, he had already warned them about this. He had said it before to them that anybody who would come to them and preach a contrary gospel is to be accursed. And now he is repeating it again. Notice that Paul is putting the onus on them. This gospel message is the gospel that they received already and which they are now turning from. False teachers are to be accursed, but they're responsible for turning from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel which had been faithfully preached to them. It's not one or the other. The false teachers are to blame, but they also have a responsibility to be faithful to the Lord who called them. In verse 10, we get a snapshot into what has been as been said about Paul. He states, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. As we will come to see, at the center of the false teaching at Galatia was the emphasis on the need for them to be circumcised and to put themselves again under the law. When Paul planted these churches, he did not require circumcision or law-keeping. He required faith alone in Christ alone. It is likely that the false teachers spoke against Paul and said that he didn't require these things because he was a people-pleaser. He wanted to accommodate the gospel to you. He accommodated and adulterated the gospel message in order to make it more palatable to the Galatians. That's, that would have been the charge that they were making. But Paul counteracts these lies told about him and rejects them. Paul is not seeking to persuade or please man as he had in his former life in Jerusalem. You can just read the narrative of the book of Acts. Paul is not trying to please man, and he certainly did not. He spoke the truth of God, and he suffered for it. Now he is a man who is devoted to pleasing God as is necessary for those who have become servants or slaves of Christ as he identifies himself. In this statement, Paul both refutes the false teachers, but he also humbly identifies himself as a mere servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of this, Paul is emphasizing the gospel is not dependent on him. Nor is it liable to be accommodated to and transformed to fit man's taste. No, the gospel is God's gospel. And it's dependent on and all about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for his people to deliver them from sin and misery, from this present evil age. Within these first ten verses, Paul delivers what is at one and the same time an immensely comforting challenging and convicting message for all of us. To the Galatians, he both reminds them of the salvation of Christ and seriously warns them against the path that they are on, explaining that they are doing nothing less than deserting him who called them, that is, God the Father, departing from the gospel, and they're embracing a perversion of the gospel, which in truth is no gospel at all. Throughout the rest of this epistle, he is going to strenuously argue against these false teachers and their false teaching, calling the Galatians back to the gospel which they had once received. 
While we're out of this historical context, these verses are no less comforting, challenging, and convicting to us. We who have believed have received this gospel of full grace and total deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yet through the pressures of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're we're constantly pushed to compromise the truth of the gospel and accommodate it to our own desires and tastes, or to the desires and tastes of the culture around us. We are all pressured to be pleasers of men, and Paul is encouraging us to stay faithful to the gospel message. Into this situation, he directs us to the gospel as not dependent on, nor is it subject to or ultimately about him who preaches, nor on those to whom it is preached. The gospel is dependent on in complete accordance with and ultimately about the truth of gospel deliverance through the person and work of Christ, which is received by faith alone in Christ alone. All subtractions from this or additions to this message are pollutions and perversions of the true gospel and are the invention of another gospel, which is no good news at all. We began today by discussing the meaning of gospel as good news. I trust now that we can understand why Paul says that there is no other good news, there is no other gospel apart from this free salvation which is found in Jesus who delivers us from this present evil age. Everything which subtracts or adds to this is a distortion. Let those of us who have received this gospel be emboldened through faith and embrace Jesus Christ clinging tightly to him. But perhaps, perhaps you're here today And you have only ever known and experienced the bad news of this world. The sin, the misery and suffering, and the heartbreak of a fallen world. Perhaps you have never known Christ and have not partaken in his deliverance. Friend, I have good news for you. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins, for the sins of all of those who look to him in faith. I encourage you now and urge all of us here to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as he has freely offered to us in the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to you belongs the glory forever and ever. You have delivered us from this domain of darkness, from a present evil age of sin, misery, and death, Lord. And you did this by sending your son who gave himself on behalf of our sins. What wondrous love is this, Lord. Help us not to be bored with the gospel message. Help us not to deviate from it. Help us to cling to Christ as he has freely offered to us in the gospel of his grace. It's in his magnificent name that we pray. Amen.